right now to hear this message from John 14. And yesterday, off, off cuff, I asked Heidi if she would read John 14. And then we didn't talk about it again because it was more like, am I alive this morning? And I was. So I'm going to ask Heidi to come and read it. So today, you get me alone on the sermon. And then you come to the mission meeting and you get Heidi and the mission meeting. And then I'll just back her up a little bit. So that's why this is going down. Um, you want a microphone? You can use this one, I guess. So here she is. We're going to read all of John 14. All right. John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me, For anything, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Judas not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but it is from the father who sent me. 
I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind, remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us be on our way. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. That may be the single longest piece of scripture we've ever read. And it's important because John 14 is an incredibly packed little, and it's not little, it's an impact chapter. And we break this thing up into so many pieces and teach sermons on these little pieces that we miss a larger picture. And that larger picture is the message at the very beginning of the passage. And it says this, do not be troubled. When I hear that, the first thing I want to do is laugh, right? I just want to laugh. I mean, we all have something to be troubled about, and it seems like we, all we have to do is look up. Just look up for five seconds, and there's something to be troubled about. Most of us are waiting for a time in our life where things are just right, where there's nothing to worry about, right? Where things are going well, there's no conflicts, there's no sicknesses in the family, there's no economic or political woes on the horizon, no challenges at work or at home. It's just that day where everything is just right. We get little glimpses of it, like when you're taking your kids to the school and all the lights are green. You ever experienced that? You like just look up and every light's green and you just cruise right on through and pull right up into the school parking lot and nobody's even there yet because they all got stuck at the red light. It's like the world is just right right now. This is the way it should be. Or, or when the weather is 75 to 80 degrees and sunny and just beautiful and you don't have any allergies this day, you don't have, you know, it's not so sunny that you're frying, you can just sit outside and enjoy getting a light tan and a breeze and it's just those kind of days, those moments of real peace that we experience, just the little flashes or like Saturdays, a Sabbath like we had yesterday where we woke up and the kids weren't home because they went elsewhere, and we were able to sleep until we were refreshed, and we woke up blissful, and for some reason, your breath smelled better, and, and then there's just waffles with lemon curd and fresh blueberries and fresh strawberries. Now, that's heaven, right? That's the way every day should start, little glimpses of life just right, but inevitably, something comes along to disrupt the just rightness of our lives, Right? You open your phone and there's just that right news article. You're headed to school and you see the row of green lights and they turn red. You know, your, your, your spouse says something offhanded that they didn't mean and it triggers you and suddenly you're in a fight. Uh, when we were in Costa Rica, Heidi and I were there and we we're just like, oh, this place is just right. Except for we realized that it's not just right because it's lonely. The missionaries are in this 
just magnificent, beautiful place, the most perfect context in the world to live out your life, and yet they have to live it out largely alone. It's not just right all the time. Life feels a little bit like a yo-yo ride. And I used to play with yo-yos as a kid, up and down. I had several of them taken away by teachers because I'd try to do it during math class. And it's just ups and downs, ups and downs. You have peaks and valleys, peaches and pits, highs and lows. We sometimes say the happies and the crappies. If you're offended by that, I'm sorry. But that's the way life seems to work, ups and downs. Uh, this Catholic priest, Barnabas Powell, said this about culture, though, and this yo-yo life that we live in. He says that the culture we live in now is addicted to either elation or despondency. We would never pay to watch a movie about ordinary life, right? We'd never pay to watch a movie about Sally gets a cup of coffee, right? And then she gets a cup of coffee, she sits and drinks it and leaves, and we'd be like, why did I pay money for this? Or Bob gets an oil change. We would never go watch Bob gets an oil change, right? We want to watch When Harry Met Sally, right? That old movie where they had these horrible breakups and they meet the love of their life and live happily ever after. We want to watch movies where the whole world is being destroyed by aliens and yet there's a ragtag band of superheroes that gather together to fight the evil overlord and bring back all the people that disappeared and win and rebuild the world. That's the kind of movie we want to watch. We want to watch the movie where there's just like this, this evil overlord has taken over the universe and a, and a, and a little group of people people with laser swords and they gather together and they fight the evil overlord and there's two robots and the two robots are really the heroes of the story but nobody thinks so and they come in and they do all these things and in the end the death star blows up that's the sort of life we want to see where we are addicted to the highs and the lows we want the big sweeping destruction and the big sweeping redemption but our everyday context is where we live right? We live here in the in-between the peaches and the pits. And it's in the in-between that we find that trouble seems to show up. Trouble comes in a lot of different ways to us. In this passage, when Jesus says to the disciples, do not be troubled, everybody is troubled, okay? Everybody in this passage is troubled. They are wound up. Have you guys ever felt wound up? I'm, I'm looking to catch, you know, some of you guys are like, I'm, I'm still stuck on Star Wars. Um, I do like that movie a lot. They get, we get wound up when trouble comes. And everybody in this passage is wound up. So you don't hear about them here, but there's Pharisees, right? These are the guys that are working in the background to crucify Jesus. They want to they off Jesus. And they are really wound up because Jesus is this guy that's out there, from their perspective, speaking heresy. And he's not just teaching heresy, but he's drawing huge crowds of people, and, and they're all listening to him, and they're buying into what he has to say. And they're saying, this guy isn't right, he's not true, this is against the word of God, and we have to stop this. The Romans, they're, they're getting a little wound up too. They're troubled. Now, Romans, they don't seem real troubled here, but anytime there's an uprising of people following a leader who is being called the king of the Jews by the people around him, that's a, that's a rebellion. And they don't like rebellion. They don't like perceived rebellion or actual rebellion. And so they get a little wound up, and they're ready to put the rebellion down. You got Jesus in this passage, and he seems a little wound up. His behavior in these couple of chapters is disturbing to the disciples. It starts with the washing of their feet. Jesus is kneeling down, washing their feet. They're like, hey, you can't be doing this. What's going on here? And then he tells Judas, you have to go and do what you're supposed to do. And Judas runs out the door. They don't know, but he's going to betray Jesus. 
And he says to Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. I would never deny you. You're going to do it anyway. And then he has this whole passage. Everybody is wound up. Everybody is troubled. And the disciples especially are troubled. Because not only are the Pharisees wound up and the Romans wound up, and some of the disciples are kind of getting sideways and Jesus is acting weird, but Jesus has also said to them, I am going away. I'm going away. I'm about to leave you. And so they are troubled. Deeply, deeply troubled. The truth is that it is easier for us to live with an anxious heart and to be troubled by the things going on around us than it is to walk in peace, than it is to live with a a heart that is centered and non-anxious and peaceful. And it's because we live on what I like to call, or I'm, I'm learning to call, the trouble train. Now, if you're a parent of my uh, age frame, this is not the dinosaur train. That is a very different sort of train. This is the trouble train. And what it is, it's just this train that we don't, we don't actually have to get on on ourselves. We don't have to climb aboard it. It's just going, and it pulls you in at unsuspecting intersections and railroad crossings, and you never have to pay the price to get on this train until you try getting off of it. It's the anxiety that rises up in us, and it's like this loop track that runs out, and it goes round and around, and we ride it, and we get wound up more and more and more as we chug along, worried and anxious, with a list of cares and concerns that consume our attention. When we look at our past, it's really all wound up in time. When we look at our past, what we see is our mistakes and our failures. We see the world's problems. We see the things that have happened in the past, and we project them out into the future as, oh, it can't be any better. It's not going to be good. And we just live in this hyperloop of anxiety and worry. It's the trouble train. And my own history, my own genogram, if you have done EHS or EHR, my family tree, if you look back at that, that thing has taught me to live on the trouble train. And I imagine many of you have been on this train with me as well. It tells me, my history tells me that whatever is coming down the track is not going to be as good as what I have right now. The world isn't safe. People aren't safe. Bad things are going to happen. So I need to protect myself. I need to beware. I need to be safe. And this is the train that the disciples are on right now. This is not going to a good place. Time to worry, time to fret, time to sharpen the sword. That's what Peter's doing. He's getting everything ready. And in the middle of that, Jesus says to them, do not be troubled. Jesus calls his followers, you and me, to be people who are untroubled. I'll say that again. Jesus calls his followers, you and me, to be people who are untroubled. We're not troubled by the massive lows that we can experience, from active shooter scares to cancer diagnosis to death of a friend to major conflicts to politics to the daily news to the crucifixion of your friend and Messiah. These things are not to trouble us. We're not troubled by the daily bumps and bruises, the red lights, the traffic tickets. Instead, Jesus calls us to be a steady, non-anxious presence in a world filled with worry, anxiety, and trouble. This morning during prayer, somebody prayed and said, Jesus, you've called us to be salt and light. Help us to be salt and light today. And Jesus is saying this very same thing to his disciples. You are here to be salt and light. Don't be troubled by what's about to happen. Now, in the world, outside of the church, there are a lot of ways that people are learning to deal with the trouble train because it's not unique to Christians. 
hooray, we're just like everybody else. But if you go to a psychologist or a counselor or a therapist or a yoga instructor, they're all going to teach you different ways in which you can manage your anxiety, which you can deal with the trouble train. But Christians have a method that others do not have, and it's a simple word that we like to use and abuse, and that word is believe. Now, we, my PowerPoint kind of went sideways this morning, and I had this great big picture of a, of a sign from somebody's kitchen with a, a little bird and lots of swoopy things, and it said, believe, right? We have abused this word, believe. We, we've taken it, and we've like, just Christian bookstored it. That's a verb now. We've Christian bookstored it. We've made it cheesy. We've made it, you know, trite. We've just like flowered it up. We've potpourried it, and we've stick it in our living rooms and in our bathrooms. Like, why in your bathroom? I don't know. Why would you ever put that in your bathroom? This is the message I need right now. Some of you understand what I'm saying. Others of you will be in the bathroom later and go, oh, this wasn't even in my notes. Yeah, imagine that. All the best things are not in my notes. We put it on coffee cups. We put it on T-shirts. Then at Christmas time, we take and we just, you know, mistletoe it. We, we make it all shiny and we say it's, this is, whoa, with Santa, we got to believe. Now, I like Santa Claus. I grew up believing in Santa Claus. I taught my children about Santa Claus. I think Santa Claus gives us wonder and magic and it's a good thing and it's okay if you disagree with that. But I think if we just isolate the word believe to Santa Claus... All we've done is completely diluted our faith, <laughs> and we've utterly missed the point. When Jesus says believe, which he does six times in this chapter, he is talking about something that is gritty. He is talking about something that is tough. He is talking about something that is buff, right? Like exercise buff. It is strong. It is secure. It is true. It is trusting. This is the, the Greek word literally means trust because you have been persuaded by evidence. Believe that the Father has revealed himself to me. That's what Jesus says. Believe that the, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Believe that I'm trustworthy. Believe that because you know me, you know the Father. Believe because you have seen miraculous signs and wonders come out of me that this is true. Believe. But what exactly are we supposed to believe? In the context of Jesus leaving and telling his friends not to be troubled, he says this, this is how you don't be troubled. Number one, believe that the Father's house is big enough. Our troubles, our worries, the things coming down the pike can seem pretty big sometimes. The news can try to say, sensationalize it to make it even bigger. Now, as I was pondering this uh, in my sleepless night last night, I started just really contemplating the cross and thinking about well, how much bigger the news of what happened on the cross, like what the disciples were facing, how much bigger that is than you know, Vladimir Putin, how much bigger that is than economic concerns, how much bigger that is than who the next president is. We're talking about the Son of God being crucified and dying. These guys had way more reason to be troubled. And Jesus says to them, like, you've got some pretty big troubles coming down the pipeline, but here's what I want you to know. My Father's house is big enough. It's big enough for you. And I'm going to prepare a house for you in my Father's house. Now, the disciples, they must have been whispering to each other at this point, because like, in their culture, in their day, in their religion, even with Jesus, there was one house for God, and that was the temple in Jerusalem, and there was one room in which God dwelled, and that was the Holy of Holies. Nobody else went in there but the priests once a year, just to dust. 
Nobody went and saw that. And Jesus is like, hey, guys, my father's house is massive. It's not just this one place. And in that house, there is all of these rooms, and I'm getting one ready for you. It's so confusing. We read it from our perspective today, and we go, oh, Jesus is talking about heaven. This is it. This is the point. This is God's got a, we sang this when I was a kid. I don't know how many of you sang this when you were kids. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. Anybody know that song? Th- two, three of you. All right. So the rest of you just heard about this weird song that we used to sing as a kid. This was worship. <laughs> I've got a mansion in heaven. And, you know, it's really a sticking point for atheists that heaven for a Christian seems to be like, it's like what Marx said, that it's the opiate of the masses. It's this thing that numbs us against the pain of the world because we have this hope of a future place in heaven, a utopian idea. But Jesus doesn't actually say ever a whole lot about heaven. The central thing he does say here, whether this is heaven or not heaven, is this, that there is a place for you with the Father for eternity And there is room for all of us to be there with him. Heaven is a place where all of God is completely present and alive with human beings who love him. It's crazy. But I'm not sure that this is actually the afterlife that Jesus is talking about. I think it's really about two places. I think it's about your heart and the church. Jesus says in verse 17 that, I'm going to send the spirit of truth, and that when he comes, he will abide in you. And he says, I and the Father are one, and the spirit proceeds from me, and we will be with you, and we will dwell in you. It's this interior space that God is preparing in us. It's a new temple, a new dwelling place for the entirety of God. Now, that's hard to get our brain around, right? All of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit— creator of the universe, this thing that cannot be contained by time, this thing that cannot be contained by the human mind that we can't begin to grasp or understand, that thing loves us individually and deeply and wholly and is moving in, into us, into our hearts, the fullness of God living in us. And then I also think it's the church. Because he says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. So you imagine the disciples sitting there, and they're thinking, well, there's only one room in, where God dwells. And Jesus is looking around at all of them. He's like, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Peter, James, John, Judas, on and on and on. Matthew, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Deborah, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Heidi, Janice, on and on. These rooms are us, dwelling places for God, our hearts, the holy of holies. And when all of these little places where God dwells come together, that's what we call the church. That's what this is right now in this moment. The fact that God's house is so big is so important because it means that we don't face trouble alone. That's what we do. Right? We want to bear down, and we're going to face it on our own. We're going to tough up. We're going to have that Western independence, and we're going to do this thing. I can get through my cancer treatment. When I went through cancer treatment, there was a man in cancer treatment who was going through chemotherapy and radiation therapy and did not tell his family. How you can do that, I don't know, because there's a lot of vomiting involved. I don't know how you get away with this. 
But he's like, oh, I'm doing this on my own. But we don't have to face the trouble on our own. We have one another. And then in the context of this, my father's house is big. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Another sticking point for many atheists, right? This feels very narrow. And a lot of Christians will say, yes, the way to heaven is narrow. It is through Jesus. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Before Jesus came, the system in place for people to connect with God was the Pharisees' temple system. One place of worship in the, on the Temple Mount, one place where God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And the way to worship there was sacrifice, lambs, animals. It was the following of laws. It was circumcision and ultimately genetics. Ultimately, it was genetics. Now, if there is ever a narrow way to get to God, I think that kind of describes it, right? If you're not genetically this way, then you can't be with God. Now, Jesus comes along, and what do people say about Jesus? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He is going into Gentile towns. He is going into Samaritan towns. He is preaching good news to all of these people who are not genetically Jewish, who are not uh, religiously Jewish, who are not following the laws, who are not making the right sacrifices. And he's eating dinner with all of these people. And the Pharisees complained because Jesus was opening the door wider. Then Jesus goes to the cross. And this is just, again, thinking about this last night, it was just kind of wrecking me in my non-sleep. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's been nailed to the cross. And he's been spit upon. He's been beaten. He's been abused. He's been whipped. He's bloody, and he is dying in agony. And he looks down at a group of Roman soldiers, the very men who nailed him to the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. Pagans who do not know who Jesus is. And Jesus says, I forgive you. That's when the, te- the, the, the veil of the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy Holies from everything else was torn. And suddenly, this doorway to God is just wide open. It is massively open. Uh, Father Greg Boyle, he is a uh, priest who lives in L.A., and he works with gang members. He rescues gang members off the street. And you know what he describes that moment as? He says it's the no matter whatness of God. We understand the faithfulness of God. We understand the love of God. But this is the no matter whatness of God. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, the door is wide open. And I have a massive house. And in that house, there is room for you. So this Jesus is one way narrow business isn't true at all. This Jesus is the way is this massively wide door that is open for all of us. This is the compassion of God. This is the heart of God. Deep down, we know that we're not perfect. Deep down, we know that we get anxious and troubled because we're concerned that maybe God's grace isn't big enough. We're concerned that maybe God is leaving some people out. We're concerned that maybe God is is more about justice than he is about kindness. And so we live tentatively. We don't live lightly and freely. And when we keep our hearts small, when God is inviting us into this untroubled, non-anxious, massive space where we can walk in grace, knowing that when we come to the cross, Jesus looks and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Jesus asked his followers then to believe that he is trustworthy. It's our human tendency to want to attach to something bigger than ourselves. When we feel small, when we feel weak, uh, we band together. We, we band together in clubs. We band together in social groups. We band together in churches. We band together in political ideas, Republican or Democrat. or you know, I don't want to be a Republican or a Democrat, so I'm going to band together with independent people, and none of us think alike. But we're together not thinking alike. They give us a sense of power, the sense that we're not alone. We band together around conspiracy theories or different ideas about what happened in, pa- in the past. And all of these things, when we find people like us, it gives us a sense that we're not alone. As followers of Jesus, we are invited to attach to something with a greater gravity than us, a greater gravity than anything else in this world, and that's God the Father. Jesus tells them that you don't have to get on that troubled train because you can get on the train of peace because you have the Father. The Father is in me, and as I, the Father is in me, I am in you. As I know the Father, I know you. As, as the Father knows me, you know me, and so you will know the Father. We have this connectedness, this attachment to something much greater than ourselves. If you're troubled by what you see when you look around, you just look at Jesus. And you see something far greater than any trouble you can face. And you don't just have stories about Jesus, but you've got your own personal experience with Jesus. That's what the disciples had. The disciples were familiar with him. They were his disciples, but they were also his friends. They camped with him for three years. They've eaten with him. They've slept under the stars. They've gotten into uncertain situations. And in every turn, Jesus has proven himself powerful and loving and good, and he cares for them, and he walks with them, and he stays with them. And it's out of that familiarity with the Father, with Jesus, that it sets his disciples free from worry about their present circumstances, no matter how hard or scary they are. I wish that was absolutely true for the disciples in this moment because clearly they stumble. But it is the ongoing story of the disciples that leads us to this truth. It's not just remembering the past stories. It's their personal experience with Jesus. And that's why it's so important for each of us to pursue his own or her own relationship with God. You can't work off of mine. You can't trust my stories to be the thing that carries you. You can't trust Heidi's stories to be the thing that carries you. Follow us as we follow Christ, but follow Christ. Have your own relationship with God. Lastly, he says to believe that the Father's presence is unchanging. One psychologist that I listened to talking about the anxiety train or the trouble train, he said this, that really our great fear is that at the end of all things, we'll find ourselves in a box, under a bridge, alone, and nobody will care. Just utter isolation. And that's why we attach to all these things, and that's why we live in anxiety. The fear is that if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. The fear is that maybe I actually am unlovable or unacceptable or incapable of handling hard things. The fear is maybe the things out in the world are bigger than, they, than God says they are, and that the political structure of the United States, if that fails, then all of us are just done, and we're going to die, and it's going to be horrible. We're going to be alone under a bridge and just alone. That's the fear. The Surgeon General recently gave a speech in which he declared a new epidemic in the United States. 
and it's not COVID-19 or COVID-20. It's not some new monkey pox, which they've now called M-pox. I don't even know why they changed it from monkey. A monkey's cooler than M-pox. They, they said that there is an epidemic of loneliness in this country. And it is not just a, uh, it's not just a social status on Facebook, lonely. It is an epidemic of epic proportions, and it is killing people. Now, in that trouble, Jesus says this, I will not leave you as orphans. He left them, but he did not leave them for long. And this is a really beautiful thing. He has never left us. The disciples, Jesus was giving them a future promise. But for us, it's been a present reality. That's the good news of living so far down the line from all of these events. The disciples had every reason to worry. Jesus was leaving them. But he came back. For us, he has never left us or forsake us. Our hope is not in a past tense God, but in a present tense Jesus. Thomas Kelly said this, Our our passion, our religious fervor, our connection to God comes from a continuously renewed immediacy, not a receding memory. The only time we actually have, it's not the past and it's not the future, It's the now, where God lives and resides. The breath that you have now is the only breath you have. And God is present in this moment, loving you right where you're at. God looks upon your past mistakes and you go, oh, this is everything's going to end. It's all done. Jesus is like, no, we just look at it through the eyes of the cross. God looks upon you with grace. And so we can look to our future with hope knowing that no matter what happens in the present, I am held, I am loved, I am cared for, I am secure. In the face of trouble, the key to peace is not banding together with others of like mind, but it's banding together with God, refusing to break your connection with God. When troubles come, they cloud our vision, and I wish I could say that they did not cloud mine, This is definitely a place where I struggle and wrestle and work, and the Holy Spirit is doing new things in me all the time. But here's the question is, at any given day, how much time do you spend thinking about the trouble of the world around you versus how much time you spend focusing on the presence of God right with you? When we remain connected to the presence of God and close to God's grace for you in the moment, we become less worried about what the future holds. We become more sensitive to what God is saying, and not just to us, but to those around us. We're better able to respond to the challenges of our day. We're less reactive, less triggered, less agitated by trouble. We're more like the disciples after the Holy Spirit comes who go to prison, who are beaten and who are abused, and yet continue to preach good news, not worried about what is even going to happen to their bodies. We become that non-anxious presence in the world, bringing the peace of God to the world around us. That peace we felt in worship this morning, that's what we carry into our businesses. When you go to work, when you're teaching a class and your kids are there and they're wound up because of active shooter things, and you're this peaceful, non-anxious presence, you're bringing the kingdom of God. When people are angry at work and infighting and bickering and you come in and you refuse to be a part of that and yet you come in as non-anxious, you bring the peace of God. We ride the peace train. 
We live in this place where we walk in grace and we receive the goodness of God and we give it out to other people. Jesus says, my peace I give you. Right now, in your anxiousness, in your trouble, in your wound upness, my peace I give you. And then he says, it's not like I'm giving it like the world gives it. Because when I leave here, I'm not taking it with me. This is yours to have. You are my follower, so here you go. Here is my peace. My peace I leave with you. I'm not taking it away. It's staying with you. You keep it. So the question this morning is, which train are you on? Are you on the peace train? Are you on the trouble train? God is inviting all of us onto the peace train in the face of our troubles. Father, I pray this morning that you would come. Come in peace. Come in power. Come rest on us. Jesus, would you shake us from our apathy? God, would you challenge the things that we've attached to? It's okay. It's all right. And God, would you make us faithful to you? Help us to believe gritty, earthy, solid belief and trust in your goodness for us. May we trust the voice that speaks peace over us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, close with the doxology. I spoke a little longer than planned.